During these afternoon teachings, we've been looking at freeness from different angles, from the perspective of uh, what we could say a bodily relationship to freeness, which we explored through the, the practices that support a certain kind of relaxation, not just a muscular relaxation, but a relaxation of the being, a relaxation of our reactivity. We looked at freeness specifically from the perspective of uh, that reactivity. The ways we tend to create tension and drama around what's happening. We looked at freeness from the perspective of uh, identification and the way we live as if the sense of self is fixed, the ways we get identified with and stuck around the sense of self. And this afternoon I'd like to look at the sense of freeness with regard then to the world. What, what is freeness of the world? What is it, freeness in the world? Right? We don't live in, a, in a, a bubble. We don't live in isolation. We live in a world, a complex world, an ambiguous world, a changing world, an interconnected world. A world, in other words, that reflects and expresses all the same qualities as everything in the world. These fluid changing qualities that we've been speaking about. This way in which the world is interconnected, not just in the conventional sense that we speak about through communication and media, etc., but much more fundamentally in some of the ways that you have been tasting and speaking about this week, where one knows an existential commonality or communion with the life around one, with other beings, with sometimes the totality of existence. So, what we, you know, the world can mean many things. For some years, actually for about 10 years, for 10 years pretty much, the whole of the 90s, um, I lived pretty much with very little communication with the wider world. Five or six years in India with a very small shortwave radio, but basically the world was what I saw around me, not really any contact with newspapers or a wider sense of media. I would call my family once a year for three minutes on Christmas Day. And I would spend most of that three minutes telling them how expensive it was for me to call. (laughs) And then Gail and I lived also for five or six years at the the first Dharma center we had down in the Pyrenees, 
very far from the road, far from any village, without electricity, etc. So I don't really know what happened in the 90s, basically. I don't know when people talk about music from the 90s, films from the 90s, cultural events from the 90s. They, they basically just passed us by. And people would say sometimes, but how do you know what's going on in the world? I say, well, I look outside my window. So we can easily have a sense of the world that is this sort of globalized, interconnected world that we receive actually mostly in the abstract. We think we know what's going on in the world, but one, that world is one or several layers of abstraction from our immediate experience. And secondly, of course, we don't get an objective, clear picture of the world through whatever news sources we choose, right? We get a very partial, a very curated, and thus a very distorted sense of the world. We get the world that the people writing the stories choose to tell us. And those, of course, are choices made in regard to whatever economic agenda, political agenda, ideological agenda, social agenda, that they may be consciously um, promoting or unconsciously promoting. Because, of course, we've all inherited and been conditioned by a sense of the world in all kinds of ways. So, the world can mean many things. We've been actually... One way of describing a retreat, and you may have said this kind of thing to your friends, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm retreating from the world in some way. I'm leaving my usual familiar world, the world of work, the world of family, the world of social life, etc. I'm leaving that a lot behind or for some week, and I'm going on retreat. Right? That's actually, I'm, you know, I tend to, I prefer to call these practice intensives rather than retreats because it's still a bit of retreats like <laughs> going backwards, basically. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a good name for what we're doing, but anyway. So in one way, we could equally say, oh, we've been kind of stepping back from the world to do these practices. But we also may have the very strong and clear experience that actually we've been stepping very intimately and fully and sensor, sensorially. It's French, but how do you say it in English? <laughs> Sensu, sen, sens, sensor, sensorially? Doesn't matter. With our senses. That we've been stepping very much into the world having a very direct relationship with the world, a very close relationship with the world, a relationship filled with listening to the world, feeling the world, seeing the world, feeling the world. So I'm using the world in a way, inevitably, that's open to all kinds of interpretations the immediate sensory experience that we might call the world, 
the world around me, and the um, the kind of more spread out and global and abstract sense of what we call the world. And we'll include that green-blue ball floating in space that we might think of when I even say the word world. And of course that's interesting for us. That's a product of our cultural conditioning. You know, When the iPhone first came out, as soon as you turned it on, you had that picture of the planet. Wild. It's just incredibly familiar image for us as the world. But, you know, we're only first or second generation in the whole history of humanity for whom that has been the world. I'm not sure exactly what year that photograph was first taken, but I think it was late 50s. That photograph of the world, maybe 61, first thing went into space, right? So maybe early 60s. That image has only existed for for most humans throughout the whole of the history, the world, whatever image it may have produced or whatever associations it produced, it wasn't a planetary world. It was a flat world for many humans. For some, apparently, it still is, mostly in the USA. <laughs> let's, let's not go there. <laughs> no, but really... It's a real thing. (laughs) The world would be defined for most people in history uh, by a kind of boundary of a couple of hundred kilometers at most. There's plenty of people here in Kubjak who have never been to Paris in their lives. Some who have never been as far as Bordeaux. So still now, for many uh, actually... Many people in the world, the world, outside of that abstract, the world may be a small place, a very homogenous place. Many people in the world don't have contact with a world of people who speak different languages, who have different ethnicities. And that shapes our sense of the world. We can see, actually, how much of the racism and the xenophobia and the... um, demonizing of certain groups comes from a lack of familiarity, a lack of exposure. And when one looks at the, the attitudes towards difference, whether it's difference based on gender or sexual orientation or ethnicity or whatever, the more exposure one has to difference, the more inclusive people tend to be of that difference the more our sense of the world expands and includes. The less exposure we have, the more we tend to be threatened by difference. That's one way of seeing our practice, right, is we're exposing ourselves to, to difference, inner and outer, exposing ourselves to new ways of seeing, different ways of seeing. And in that exposure, we're growing our tolerance, Growing our capacity to allow and actually normalize and care for different ways in which body and heart and mind and world can appear to us. So, the world that we meet, the world that we imagine, the world that we think of, 
The world that we act in and live in is conditioned by all kinds of things. Conditioned by the sensory realm, like we've just been saying. Conditioned by the the, the news that we consume, etc. Consume and so we find ourselves as these conditioned beings living in this conditioned world. And that one of the primary threads of this te- these teachings is exploring of conditioning, or what the Buddha calls you know, the freedom from conditioning, freeing up our conditioning. And again, different realms of conditioning that we can look at. Firstly, just our biological conditioning. We've got a lot, a large part of our biological conditioning hasn't evolved very much for thousands of years. There's all kinds of, you know, interesting stuff which you may well know better than I because I'm not very good at retaining this kind of information. But, you know, a large percentage of our DNA is shared with, you know, crocodiles and things, right? See what I mean? I'm not very good at this. <laughs> but, you know, all that stuff about the reptilian brain and the mammalian brain, the instinctual drives that we just inherit as part of our biological conditioning. Right? We are biological di- conditioning that gives us a certain kind of lifespan, a certain kind of sensory apparatus, certain kinds of instincts, the survival instinct, the sexual instinct, the social instinct. And how easily we take that conditioning in a very personal way. That's part of the identification with the sense of self we were speaking about yesterday. But this is something that all life forms have. That a drive to survive. And we can get it very much about, you know, when we get into the tension and drama and the story making of it. About what I need and how I'm going to feel secure. My survival, in other words. Yet there's a way in which we can recognize it's part of that. A lot of that's just our biology. Programmed to survive. Same around the sexual drive. And all the tension and drama we can make around that. But a lot of that is biological. And the social drive, right? the need for touch and love and affection and contact and support. And all those drives, actually, we really get to explore and retreat in some way. Partly because there's a way in which the conditions here sort of deprive us of some of our familiar ways of acting out those drives. Right? Often the ways that we act out our survival drive is by trying to have things be just right and comfortable for me. And our capacity to do that is a little bit compromised or might feel for some of you majorly compromised by being here. You kind of you just sort of get told when to get up and you just eat what you're given. And um, that can be quite threatening for some coming on retreat. Sexual drive it's kind of gets quite um, frustrated on retreat. Not, not even allowed to speak to each other. 
let alone touch each other. And for some, oh, that comes as a welcome relief. But for, wow, the sexual drive can go crazy in retreat as well. And the ways in which we can get to see just how potent sexual energy can be. Sexual drive, the heat of it playing out physically, the drama of it, the storylines, the inner movies of the the scenarios playing out, etc. And the social drive, the ways we can kind of um, sort of want for a contact, want for sharing, the ways we relate to the silence, right? Ways we project all kinds of things onto the group. People, some will come, and I hear the reports of all these different things about the way the group is, or the way the silence is. And of course, there is no such thing as the group, right? in terms of some homogeneous entity or energy field, or the silence. And people will say the silence is so heavy. What does that mean? Is the silence heavy? Maybe the silence isn't anything. Some might be experiencing it heavily. Some might be experiencing it peacefully. Some might be experiencing it ecstatically. So how we experience that shows more about our tendency to project onto the world, to perceive in a certain way. So, biological conditioning. And then, the cultural conditioning of how we are in the world. And the way, you know, our visions, like, what's your vision of freeness with regard to your biology? You know, our biology is a messy thing. And sometimes we come to a, a practice like this actually trying to kind of lift off out of our biology even, trying to escape the, the intensity of those drives. Or trying to exp- ex- escape the poignancy of the fact that people get sick and die, that we get sick and die that we don't really understand much about what it means to die. It's something we completely share with all life forms. It's quite uncomfortable for most of us to confront that. and So we tend to fall back on some cultural conditioning, some religious conditioning, etc., etc., some comforting belief. And some of us find comfort in the belief of an eternal heaven and hell, Some of us find comfort in the belief that we're going to come back again and again and again. And some of us find comfort in the belief that when the last breath is squeezed out of me, it's all over and I'll rot in the ground and be fed to worms. And then our cultural conditioning, which has all these different strands to it, What are the strands? For most of us, they're the strands of growing up in a liberal Western democracy, 
or quasi-democracy. The strands of scientific materialism, which is, shapes our worldview. And they're the strands of... Um, what else? There's something else. The, the strands of a kind of... Whatever else culturally associated. I mean, Judeo-Christian, uh, yeah, whatever religious uh, belief we grew up in. Which broadly in, in Europe, for any of us who have grown up in Europe, there's which, whatever kind of family system we grew up in, there's the Judeo-Christian shaping of our culture. Plus whatever other strands you may have. Some of us may have grown up in a rather kind of homogenous way. We've grown up as the product that we feel of a single culture. It's never completely true, right? Because our cultures, even the ones that look homogenous, have had all kinds of other influences. Or some of us may have grown up in a polyethnic uh, situation or in a poly or mixed cultural situation. We may have grown up in a way that in a, where we were uh, immigrants or where our parents had been immigrants. And of course, all that affects our sense of how the world is, how safe the world is, how um, um, how built for me, how how welcoming to me the world is. And if unexamined, we tend to think that that is the way the world is, the way our culture has informed us the way it is. We think that's the way uh, the world is, the way scientific materialism describes it. And so our, our beliefs about freeness, about what we want, about what's important, our values, our morals, are shaped by that cultural conditioning in ways that we may be completely oblivious to, most of us, and yet in ways that we can wake up to, in ways I would say that it's vital that we wake up to so that we have some clarity of vision, some freeness to respond beyond just our cultural conditioning. Fabrice and I were speaking a couple of days ago about a study that was done where a lot of American, young American men, I think, were asked, who do you think has the happiest life? Dalai Lama or Bruce Willis? Do you know who Bruce Willis is? Okay, some, some may not. Depends on your cultural uh, conditioning, right? <laughs> Many people in the world wouldn't have a clue who either of those people are. So, I don't know. You, Dalai Lama, is we probably know. It's nice that I'm more reassured that you'll know who the Dalai Lama is than Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is action movie star. So these young American men were asked, who do you think has the happier life, Dalai Lama or Bruce Willis? And pretty much universally they said, uh, Dalai Lama. Okay. Who do you think has the more meaningful life, Dalai Lama or Bruce Willis? Dalai Lama. Okay. Who do you think were the other questions? There were several questions like this, right? And in each case, the young boys with great discerning wisdom, Dalai Lama seemed to have a happier life, 
more meaningful life, uh, more useful life, better life, etc. Then last question. Who would you rather be? (laughs) Whose life would you rather live? Right? What happened? Oh, Bruce Willis. So even when we think we can, we recognize what the important, we recognize what happiness might be, what meaningfulness might be, what depth might be, what important might be. Actually, our cultural conditioning, in this case, let's not include us all, but in this case, young American males, cultural conditioning tells them, but nevertheless, wealth and fame and glamour is the direction to look in for happiness and freedom. And that's kind of, you know, the American dream, right? But it's easy for us to sit over here, Ben, be smug in France and laugh at Americans. I mean, actually very easy right now, but okay. <laughs> but, you know, we have a, there's a lot of shared cultural values in, the th- in the, what we've inherited, right? So we're asked to look at our own cultural conditioning the way that shapes our sense of the world, the way that shapes our, um, uh, our, our values, and therefore shapes what we turn towards, what we support. And then we have our family conditioning. Right? The ways in which our families, you know, what we grew up with as an experience of the world, filtered through our families beliefs, our family's insecurities, our family's uh, wealth, our family's uh, way of being with us, in all kinds of ways. And, of course, then the personal conditioning that that we generate through our lives, through what we turn to through the, what we turn to, for example, for our sense of the world. And all of this is in the realms of our relationship within the world. All this is in the realms of what's co- what conditions us, and all this is in the realms of a genuine exploration of freeness. So that it's not... So that... It's free to explore inwardly and outwardly. Free to explore personally and collectively. Most of us here, all of us here, to some extent, greater or lesser extents, actually. But we enjoy a certain amount of personal freedoms, certain amount of economic freedoms, certain amount of political freedoms. Not as many freedoms as others that we know maybe, but a lot more freedoms than many people in the world. And that's an important recognition for us as well. The kind of, whatever degree of responsibility we might feel, what do I want to do with these freedoms? And this extraordinary opportunity. Because if we look culturally, for example, 
we and look, if we look and see what are we doing with these freedoms? What are we doing with, the, um, with this extraordinary opportunity of a human life, or of collective human life, of cultural human life? And the main engines, it's interesting, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, Buddha talks about what I think I referred to the other night as the three poisons. Right? Greed, hatred, and delusion. In other words, the three main reactive ways to the different tastes of experience. Greed is the reaction to the pleasant, Wanting, getting, pursuing, consuming. Hatred, negativity, the, the reactive movement towards the unpleasant, rejecting, not liking, fighting with. And then delusion, the reactive movement to the neutral. Right? Distracting, uh, uh, moving away from, seeking some amusement. So here we are two and a half thousand years later in a globalized world, an interconnected world, and we see the globalization of those three movements. Consumer culture is really the institutionalization or globalization of greed. The way we've, we've generated extraordinary means for consuming. And the institutional of hatred, the basically the military-industrial complex, the way that we've be- generated incredibly powerful and dangerous means of um, aggression and domination and destruction. And then the institutionalization of delusion, the endless ways in which we've generated means to amuse ourselves, distract ourselves. And, you know, that's not all of the world we live in. We live in a world as well where we see extraordinary human kindnesses. We see extraordinary human courage. We see extraordinary human possibility. We see extraordinary human graciousness. But many times it can seem that in order to, to find those things, honor those things, support those things, that we need to go, what the Buddha calls, two and a half thousand years ago, going against the stream. Against the stream of those three movements, greed, hatred, and delusion. And you don't need me to tell you how those things are dominating the world, how those things are uh, the mechanisms by which we're, at an alarming rate, poisoning our water and heating our atmosphere and making species extinct and... Uh, threatening the biosphere and the capacity for human survival. So what's our response to personal conditioning, cultural conditioning, family conditioning, biological conditioning? How are we to live freely in this extraordinary world beautiful world, uh, threatened world, mad world. Like I say, the world is an ambiguous thing. It can be looked at in many different ways. It can be defined in many different ways. It can be met in many different ways. In terms of the personal conditioning, in other words, how can we bring wisdom and love to take the thread of yesterday to these different realms? 
In terms of personal conditioning, that's a lot, you know, the realm of meditation, right? That's what we're doing these days. Bringing wisdom and love. Bringing awareness and exploration towards whatever's not free. Noticing our personal conditioning. Waking up to our habits of mind. Training our attention. Kind of directing ourselves towards this capacity for freeness. Not so much free to be free from this personality, but more, I would say, free in this personality. Free to, more than just know, free to express wisdom and love as our modus operandi. And it's as obvious to you as to me that the world needs wisdom and love. And then how do we bring those same qualities to our family conditioning? A lot of that also can happen in meditation as we recognize some of our inherited patterns, beliefs, reactions. Some of the things that God... hardwired early on. It's also very much the realm of different therapeutic practices and the ways we can actually um, work with emotional and psychological healing of some of the wounds or traumas or, or just the, the, the patterning that got set up early on. And the very real way in which, and many of you I'm sure have tastes and examples of that in your life, the very real way in which we can actually know a freedom from our history. Even though it may be a history that we've been reinforcing and playing out the same pattern, the same way of reacting for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. That those things can actually be explored and, um, and cared for. That we can bring an exploration, a wisdom and a compassion to those things. That act- so that one actually knows, oh, that, that's gone. That belief or that hurt or that anger that I know where it started and I know why I kept doing it but I was powerless to stop doing it for so long. It's gone. And we're actually free to to respond to the present moment situation maybe for the first time in our life, rather than responding through the lens and the habit and the sort of Pavlovian response of our history. And then the wisdom, the love, that we might bring to the culture in which we live in, to that cultural condition the ways we might see, sense our possibility, our responsibility maybe, our necessity 
to go against the stream, to speak and act for the values that we believe in, to be willing to be to stand in solidarity with those who enjoy less freedoms than us, for those who are the victims, the dispossessed, the disempowered, the threatened, humans and animals and the biosphere, by the kind of rapacious nature of our cultural uh, stuff. And and our practice calls on us. This isn't an inner practice. Nor is it an outer practice. It's an all-encompassing practice. It's a practice where we see that to reduce our life or our activities to inner or outer is a is a kind of is a, is unreal. And it's interesting that if one looks at Buddha's life, for example, Buddha was just as much a social revolutionary as he was a teacher of inner transformation. Same if one looks at the life of Christ. A lot of teachings of the heart. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Look within, etc., etc. And there's the Christ that turns over the tables of the moneylenders in the temple. Christ that's outspoken on behalf of uh, the poor and the dispossessed. And certainly the examples and the teachers and the beings I've most admired and most learned from in my life have had a kind of a, a, a love of inner exploration and transformation and a wide awake and sometimes fierce commitment to caring for the world, responding to the world, acting in the world. And so that becomes a practice for us, a koan, a contemplation for us. How do I want to be in the world? How can I be in the world? How do I want to show up in the culture I live in and am influenced by and therefore can influence? What does it mean to express our freeness, to orientate towards freeness in the social milieu, the cultural milieu? What does it mean to bring love and wisdom to where we work and how we work and what we do for work with what we support financially, what we buy, etc.? And of course, as the end of the retreat approaches, and as the stuff of one's working life, family life, social life, start to uh, impact more closely, 
it would be a, a tragedy if we were to somehow separate off the inner from the outer. Because we start to see that they're constantly interpenetrating. And then even in the biological realm, beyond what we might think of as any kind of uh, conscious conditioning, this biological conditioning that we've inherited these instincts, these drives, this reptilian and mammalian brain that we have. How might we bring wisdom and love to this? How might we meet this more and more freely? Like we said, uh, maybe yesterday, we're not the end product of evolution. We're in process. And we can explore this experience. We can actually consciously evolve this experience. Many of you this week have learned ways that your mind can open up that were hitherto unimaginable. Many of you have tasted realms of experience that are beyond usual conceptual mind. Right? That's an evolution of the consciousness's capacity. And it certainly seems to me, given that life is infinite, and that consciousness is infinite, and that experience is infinite, it certainly seems to me, after 30 years of this practice, and the more I interest, interest myself in all of this, that the, 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 our capacity for how we can experience is infinite the ways in which consciousness can develop and grow and deepen is infinite. And as it does that, we actually reprogram our being. We reprogram our cells. We reprogram our DNA. And I don't know much about, like I say, the, the sort of the sciencey bit of that. Except there are plenty of Studies now that particularly show, for example, the neuroplasticity of meditation, for example. Neuroplasticity means the way the, the way the brain actually works changes as we, as we explore consciousness. The centers for empathy, for non-conceptual awareness, for intuition, for love, They don't come from the brain, but the brain activity associated with them can be measured. So we can, can, and I would say we are, evolving our biology. We're evolving what a human can be. And given that we don't know how long we have to do that, personally, we don't know how long this is going to last, Culturally, we don't know how long this is going to last with the economic freedoms and the political freedoms, uh, etc., etc., that we enjoy. We don't know how long this is going to last. And globally, planetarily, we don't know how long this is going to last. So, 
what seems like a wise response and a loving response. My suggestion is to point yourself in the direction of freeness, personally, historically, culturally, biologically, in all realms, in all moments, in all activities. And in that way, to know and feel the contribution that we can each make personally and collectively to a free life.